right, we're ready to do a chat about a chapter of the Bible. We're studying in the book of Acts, and today we are in Acts, the second chapter, which is a very um, action-packed, exciting, important chapter in the Bible. Jason, are you ready to talk about Acts chapter 2? Absolutely. Let's dive in. Yeah, so much to talk about here, so we really can't spend a whole lot on, on introductory sorts of things. We will just simply uh, kind of just pick up where we left off at the end of Acts chapter 1, where Jesus had told his apostles before he ascended back into heaven that uh, you need to go to the city of Jerusalem, and there you need to wait for uh, the next round of instructions as to what's going to happen next. Uh, the Spirit is going to come, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and He's going to uh, guide you and lead you into the, the next phase of the work of the kingdom. And that's what brings us to chapter 2. Uh, the last event that we noticed at the end of chapter 1 was the apostles selecting the replacement for Judas, uh, and that of course is Matthias. And so now that that's settled, uh, it's now just waiting for uh, the time and for the moment. So let's just kick it off. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Just that one verse already uh, has some stuff that we do need to uh, talk about and to think about for a second. Uh, because we're given the, the time and the place of these events that are going to take place in Acts chapter 2. And we're told there specifically this is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is actually just the, the ancient Greek term that is used to describe um, the Hebrew holiday or feast or festival uh, that is talked about in the Old Testament in a number of places, which is the Feast of, of Weeks, uh, sometimes referred to as the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of the First Fruits. Um, and that would have taken place, it always takes place between mid-May uh, and mid-June. In fact, this year, I looked on, I googled it right before we started, uh, this year Pentecost falls on May the 31st, uh, 2020. Um, it comes at the end of what is in, in modern day Hebrew known as uh, Shavas. Um, and uh, it's an important time for, uh, for Jews, for Israelites. Uh, that festival was designed for, for Jews to express their thankfulness to God for uh, the blessings of particularly the, the first uh, harvest. That's why it was sometimes referred to as the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of First Fruits. Um, and, and so we've got these Jews here that they've already been in Jerusalem for, for the Passover, uh, which of course commemorates um, God bringing the Jews, uh, the Israelites, out of Egypt and uh, all the things that went along with that. Uh, and so now here we are several weeks later. We noticed last week from chapter 1, 40 days had passed uh, in that time after Jesus had raised from the dead where he's working with the apostles. Now it seems like we've got maybe another 9 or 10 days that have passed that brings us to this specific date on the calendar, uh, which is the day of Pentecost. And uh, when you do some investigating about Pentecost and where that falls on the calendar, uh, it is worthy to note that it always falls on a Sunday. And so that's the day of the week that we're talking about here. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that Sunday uh, is such an important day to Christians. Um, Sunday being the first day of the week, uh, creation began on Sunday. So that makes Sunday pretty significant. Uh, here in Acts chapter 2 now, we're going to see that Sunday is going to serve as the, uh, the beginning point for, for the church. Um, 
the, uh, the full ushering in of the kingdom as had been uh, talked about by Jesus and taught and prophesied and so forth. Um, and so this is a pretty important day in Christian history, uh, co-opting a Jewish day, but now it's going to be important for Christians. Yeah, that's convenient. I, I just think that it's really cool to see um, the beginning of the church and so many things are established in Acts, especially these early chapters. And so that's going to, it's going to be a major thing. It's going to keep coming up the, the Sunday, first day of the week, uh, Jesus' resurrection, that was Sunday. And so, I mean, we, we see all kinds of stuff like that. You know, what, what strikes me here is that it has been about 10 days since we saw Jesus resurrected. Right. Um, and, and being one of the apostles there, I, I just wonder how antsy they would have been. You know, they're, they're just there sort of waiting, you know, hanging out. And uh, we saw that they had prayed together, which is a good thing to do all the time. Right. Um, but now I, I just think that, that that makes this a little bit more special because of all the anticipation waiting up. Yeah, and especially the, the ESV uses the word, when the day of Pentecost arrived. I don't know how the New American Standard renders that, but... Had uh, come. Had come. Uh, I, I like the idea of arrive, like there was this anticipation, and now the day has come. Uh, so much of what has been uh, talked about in the Old Testament and even in these first four chapters of the New Testament is pointing forward to this moment. And then from Acts chapter 3 on, so much of the rest of the New Testament points back to what's going to take place here in Acts chapter 2, which is why Acts chapter 2 is often referred to as kind of the hub of the Bible. Um, it's not the geographical center of the Bible, but in many ways it is kind of the, the, the center of the Bible. And I often have heard of uh, that, that preachers have a greasy spot in their Bible in Acts chapter 2 because they refer to it so often and they go to it so I know that I refer to it often in my preaching even if I don't turn all the way over there uh, I'm talking about it a lot and um, part of that's because we talk so much about Acts 2 38 mm. and we right. will talk about that today it's an important verse um, but in order for us to get and appreciate Acts 2 38 we need to know all of Acts 2 um, and it all starts just right here in verse 1. Yeah, there's a reason why it's in there, and I think that we're going to see that. It leads right up to it. Yes, yeah. yes. But there's so much here in this chapter um, other than just verse 38. And it begins here with just knowing the, the time and the place. They're all here in this upper room uh, on the day of Pentecost. Verse 2 now. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Um, this is... Exciting. I mean, it, it, that's all said in a short amount of words, but, you know, if, if we were watching the movie of this, um, this would be a pretty dramatic scene that probably would last much longer than hmm. the amount of time it took me to read that. Um, right. This gets our imaginations going, uh, obviously, um, with the actual sounds and the sights uh, that are taking place there in this, in this upper room. Um, but I think one of the things that we just are, are expected to take from this is just the, the awesomeness, the power, the unforgettable nature of this event. Because Peter, later on in the book of Acts, is going to refer back to this event right here. He's going to say, hey, what other occasion was there where something like this happened in our lives? And it's this moment right here in the opening verses of Acts chapter 2 uh, when the Spirit comes upon them in this uh, mighty and powerful way, this rushing wind um, filling the entire house, it says. Um, 
the mighty rushing wind, I think we're going to see here in a couple couple minutes and here in a couple verses, that obviously this didn't just affect the you know the apostles and the other disciples that were there in that room. Obviously, this affected the other people that were there in the town mm. because other people end up coming out. They hear this, and they, or maybe their house shook because of it as well. Um, I think that shows that it is. It wasn't some kind of intangible thing. That yeah. it wasn't. You know, maybe you could have missed it. Maybe it wasn't. You know, Everybody. quite clear. I mean, yeah, you saw that. You heard it. You knew it was there. Yeah, which is the way. You know, over and over again. Uh, the miracles of Jesus worked. You know, they were done in a very public fashion. The the miracles that the apostles are going to later do uh, throughout this book are going to be done in a public way. It's not some, you know, secret like, well, you know, I'm not really sure if that happened or not. No, I mean, there's going to be witnesses that can confirm and uh, validate that. Thankfully, uh, in Jerusalem at this time, we have a lot of witnesses. That's exactly right. That's exactly, and we'll see just how many here in just a second. Verse three, on top of the mighty rushing wind uh, coming and filling the house, verse three says that divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Um, I, I've seen, you know, uh, pictures where. where uh, like in Bible class material for for young children, tries to to illustrate and depict this. And usually it's, you know, you got the 12 apostles there and there's these little flickers of, you know, flames just kind of hovering above their heads and they're usually in the shape of a kind of like a tongue. Um, Maybe that literally is what's being described here in verse 3. I don't know entirely. Um, It would make sense. Uh, especially if it was in the shape of a tongue and people recognized that it was like a tongue, that they would uh, see, okay, something special about these 12 guys. They got these little flames <laughs> flickering over the top of their heads. Um, and maybe it has something to do with, with a tongue. And we will see here momentarily that tongues is a big part of what they're doing. Um, but I don't know. I mean, if somebody asked me to describe, hey, what do you think? How do you think that looked? I don't know. Uh, probably those little... Uh, you know, illustrated and animated pictures that I've seen of this is probably what I would end up just going with, for lack of a better response. Yeah, exactly. A lot of times in the Bible, we 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 hear things, especially like Book of Revelation or any of the Old Testament prophets. It's they always use these comparison. It's like this, or it's as one of these. Yes. You know, it's you can't really describe it, and, and we don't have a, a good picture of that. But uh, we do the best we can with what we have. Yeah. The, the, this fact that whatever it meant that it says that it rested on each one of them, mm-hmm. I think that's the main. T- Takeaway that it, th- this was designed to differentiate these men from everybody else, everybody else there, and that was in that upper room. Everybody else who was there in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, something has fallen upon these these twelve men uh, that's going to set them apart. Mm-hmm. Verse four. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here's the actual confirmation that what happened was was the actual falling of the Holy Spirit upon them or the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon them, whichever those terms that you choose to use. Um, Verse 4, though, we do need to talk about for a second uh, because it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the suggestion being as well, they all began to speak in other tongues. Um, Lots of folks look at this passage and seem to believe that everybody who was there that day because it says all, everybody uh, got the Holy Spirit and everybody had the ability to speak in tongues and everybody had these uh, spiritual gifts imparted to them at that time. 
What do we say about that? What, what, what is our response and, and how would we um, maybe help somebody to think differently and consider differently about that particular viewpoint? Well, I, I, I can think of three major things right off. Who was the Holy Spirit promised to specifically? There we go. Jesus said uh, that, you know, I'm going to send the Comforter uh, to guide you into all truth, talking to the Twelve themselves. At the end of chapter 1, verse 26, talking about Matthias was added to the 11 apostles, um, that, that seems to be the group that we are focused on right now. Yes. I think in grammar, the... Uh, the term is uh, the immediate antecedent. So you know the, the the chapter divisions. If you were reading Acts for for you know by the original recipients, you didn't have these chapter divisions. Right. So when you got all these thems and theys and that sort of kind of talk, well, you need to go back and look who is the immediate person that this was talking about that was specified before Luke starts using all these thems and theys. And the last thems and theys that were referenced is yeah. is the apostle specifically. Yeah, that would make sense. I, I think on top of that. Verse 14 sort of clears that up for me. I, I don't think there's any way we could look at this uh, in verse 14 where Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, mm-hmm. raised his voice and declared. So, I, I mean, it's, it's talking about this group. Yes, this yes. I think, those, I think those three things that you mentioned, that's, that's the three that I would go to to, to point to to say that uh, this gift was given to those twelve men to whom Jesus had given the promise to, and, uh, and it's these twelve men that we're going to see functioning uh, with these gifts here in the beginning. Now, mm. Peter's going to say some things, and he's going to quote some things here momentarily about how uh, the, the Holy Spirit uh, falls upon more than just these twelve, uh, and, and these gifts become available to others, and that is going to be true. true. And, and, and we'll talk about that, and actually as we work through Acts, we're going to see clear evidence of that. Um, but, but right here, for our purposes and what we're looking at in Acts chapter 2, this is the promise that Jesus gave being fulfilled that the Holy Spirit would come upon these 12 men uh, for them to be able to, to now do what, what He has commissioned them to do. Just real quick, for someone who's listening and maybe curious, well, who else would be able to get that? How, how do you receive that type of gift of the Holy Spirit? Um, read Acts 8. I think Acts 8 yeah. explains that pretty clearly. Um, yeah, we'll and, 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 and I thought about with, with all that we, we've got to try to cover here in chapter 2, We'll probably just save that for when we get to chapter yes, eight, as right. far as how those gifts, you know, were imparted uh, from this point forward. Um, but Acts eight will be a great place for us to talk about the actual passing on, uh, so to speak, of, of these gifts to to others. Um, so they begin to speak in these these tongues uh, as the Spirit gives them utterance. When the Bible talks here about tongues, um, it's not talking about speaking in some unknown language that no one has ever heard before. Sometimes you'll hear folks that believe in, in the uh, charismatic gifts of tongues still going on today. You hear them talk about the tongues of angels. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a language that only the angels know. Um, that's not what's being described here. And in fact, I think when people say that, it's an insult to angels, um, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, the, the, the tongues that are being described here are actual known languages that people in other parts of the world and uh, the dialects that were common to those areas. It's real languages that people spoke, real tongues in that sense. Um, But what made this special and unique is that these apostles are being given the ability to talk in this way without having studied and learned these languages. Um, I took Latin in seventh grade. I took German in eighth grade. I took Spanish in ninth grade. I took French in tenth grade. 
I know a few words and I know a few phrases and how to talk in those languages, but it's only because I spent like a whole semester learning and studying and repeating these things over and over again over time. That's generally how you learn a language that is not known to you. Um, this is special, special and remarkable because these guys are being given the ability to talk in, an, in a different language without having done that. They didn't take, you know, Rosetta Stone courses or uh, any of that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's God miraculously working through the Spirit to give them the ability to talk in these, these other languages. Yeah, I think we're going to see that pretty clearly. Uh, you know, maybe we should read this next section to get a, you know, let the Bible tell us. Let's do that. Verse 5. Uh, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. You made mention a second ago that there's a lot of people here, uh, and there are at this time. You've got all these people that have come from kind of every corner of the the globe, uh, at least the, the known world at that time, uh, who've come to Jerusalem for the purpose of the Passover and all the other feasts and festivals that go along with that. So we've got all these men, and in fact, under the old law, uh, Jewish males were required three times a year to come to Jerusalem to observe various uh, of these feasts. Um, and so I think it's probably actually safe for us to say that when it says in verse 5, devout men, uh, sometimes that word men can be used in a generic sense to just talk about people. Mm-hmm. But actually I think right here probably it is probably talking about there's a lot of males here yeah. uh, who have come, representatives from their family uh, to observe uh, these things, especially if you had a family with like, you know, a wife and lots of children, uh, being able to always make all of those trips to Jerusalem every time maybe was not always feasible. And maybe that's part of the reason why God didn't always require everybody in the entire family has to come for these various feasts. Um, but the males were three times a year, and this was one of those occasions. So you got a lot of dudes mm. uh, here in Jerusalem yeah. at this time. It's kind of hard for a whole family to travel and be gone you know, seven or eight weeks or however yeah. long that most of these guys were. This is a longer than normal vacation for sure. <laughs> right. Um, verse 6. And at this sound... And I take that to mean the sound of that mighty rushing wind from a few verses ago. The multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Um, God intentionally designed the coming of the Holy Spirit here upon these men to be done in such a way that it would draw the attention of others uh, and they do, and they come. Bewildered is the word that the ESV uses in verse 6. What? Yeah, same here. Same word. Yep. Um, we're going to see here in the next verse, there's some other reactions as well. But the thing that bewilders them, you know, that they can't give an explanation for, uh, is the fact that they're hearing these apostles speaking in their own languages. Um, when we get down here in a few verses, we're, we're going to see here in verses 9 and 10 and 11, some of the areas and regions where these people are from, and I take it to be that that's the, that's the different kinds of languages and dialects that they're hearing the apostles uh, speak in. And um, this would not have been normal at all, especially to hear uh, just a bunch of kind of ragtag Jewish guys from Galilee, um, not necessarily known for being highly educated hmm. um, or for you know being so wise and philosophical. They're now speaking fluently uh, in these other languages, and it would have captured their uh, attention rightfully so, which is why verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, and they said, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? You know, especially... Peter and Andrew and James and John, I mean, those are 
fishermen. I mean, fishermen know. Yeah. You know, these are guys who, I mean, these are blue-collar type workers. Um, maybe Matthew being a tax collector, maybe he... Maybe he would have been considered a little more on the educated side, I would, I would suppose. Um, but most of these guys, this is not, this just doesn't seem like reality at all. Um, it's not, I mean, you think about the most, uh, and I don't want to be offensive with this, but the least intelligent of your relatives, you know, think about that. <laughs> and they come to Thanksgiving dinner and they're speaking fluent Mandarin and Portuguese and German. You yeah. know, it's, it's not something that you expect. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, that, that actually shows the wisdom of the Lord to use common, uneducated men in order to convey his message. Uh, you know, if these were guys that had already been so well-schooled and learned in all the ways of of, of language and culture and all this kind of stuff, yeah, that's not all that impressive. Mm. You know, we would kind of expect that out of people like that. But this is totally, it, it's outside of the norm. It is miraculous uh, in what's taking place here. And, and that just goes to show one of the purposes of miracles was to, uh, to validate the message that was going to be presented um, and, and validate the speaker uh, of those messages. Because um, that's going to be the point of giving the apostles these abilities is because they've got important stuff to say. It's not just, hey, we've got cool things we can do, but it's we got important, we got important words that need to be spoken. Um, verse 8, they continue asking, How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So you've got all these different uh, nationalities, so to speak, of, of people. These are Again, these are still people that are practicing Jews, but they're living in different parts of the world, so they've, they've adopted the languages of those other parts of the world, and they're hearing the apostles talk in all of these ways, and specifically, they're talking and speaking of the mighty actions and deeds of God. Um, just an amazing thing to have seen, I would only imagine. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, verse 8, I don't think we can overstate the importance that it was the language to which they were born. Yes. And, I mean, all of those areas, um, how would this group of 12 people be able to know each and every single dialect that was there? There's no way that they could do that, and that's the important thing. And I think that this helps us to see what, what the, the gift of tongues really is about. You know, uh, a lot of people do point, like you were saying earlier, to this as like, okay, Pentecost. That's mm -hmm. where we get the term Pentecostal. Right. Um, and there's several groups that would, would call themselves by that name who their idea of, of tongue speaking is a lot different than what we experience here. Yes. Um, I think that we, we see the evidence here and it's, it's just really amazing. Sometimes one of the questions that gets asked about this miracle here is, where did the miracle take place? Did the miracle... Um, take place in the ears of the hearers, or did the miracles take place in the mouth of the speaker? Um, and let me say, first of all, God is capable of either. True. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But, but I think the text just answers that for us, that uh, this, the miracle is in the mouth of the speakers. Mm -hmm. um, who had Jesus promised this to in the first place? 
Well, the promise was to the to the apostles. Yeah. You know, he he promised that the spirit was going to fall on them. He didn't say the spirit was going to fall on uh, all these people, and they're they're going to be you know amazed because of what falls on them. I, I, I think specifically the answer is um, the apostles, the, the the speakers. That's where the miracle is taking place and what they are doing. Yeah. Um, and they are speaking actual languages of these people from various uh, regions round about the world. Um, and in fact, it's important to note, you, know, you talked about what is commonly believed about tongue speaking in modern day charismatic groups, uh, the Pentecostals and so forth. Um, there's a fundamental misunderstanding there of what was the point of those tongues in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, it's so that these people could understand and truly be edified by what they heard. You know, you, you start pulling in the, the long discourse that Paul gives about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians in chapters 12 and 13 and 14. And one of the main points that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 14 is that if you're speaking in tongues and people don't understand what you're saying, then, then you're not helping anybody. You're not edifying anybody. You're just making a bunch of noise and that's not beneficial at all. In fact, Paul gives legislation about if you're doing that and nobody understands what you're saying, then you need to sit down and shut up. You know? <laughs> yeah, pretty uh, much. Yeah. And so w- what the apostles are doing here is 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 intelligible language, mm-hmm. uh, and it can be understood, and it serves uh, the specific purpose there of of being able to impart uh, the the knowledge of God to to these people on this on this important occasion. I think to illustrate what you were saying with the, uh, is it a gift of, of, in the mouth of, of the apostles or the ears of the other people? You, you don't see fiery ears coming down and sitting <laughs> right. on the crowd. You know? <laughs> right. it, was, it was the tongues. And I, I think we're going to see here in a second, uh, like an objection that some people are trying to raise, trying to explain away this miracle. And it wouldn't make sense if the, the miracle was on the ears. Uh, and we'll get to that, I'm sure. Right, right. Uh, well, let's keep reading. Look, verse 12 and 13, the response of the people all were amazed and perplexed and they were saying to one another what does this mean and if I were one of those people that's probably one of the things I'd be asking good question what's going on here there's little flame things over top of these guys heads and they're up there talking in languages that I just totally did not expect and there was that wind and all of these events coming together to provide a perfect storm it, I, it does seem to indicate though that these people understood there has to be some significance to all of this. Right. For all of these yeah. things to be happening you know, at the same time, maybe if one of these events happened on a random occasion and then one of these events happened you know, days or months later on its own separate occasion, maybe we wouldn't think anything of it. But they do seem to, to understand there has to be some meaning behind all of this uh, and we need to get to the bottom of it. We need to figure out what this means. Uh, there were, of course, verse 13, uh, people on the other side of the fence who were mocking, and they said, oh, they're filled with new wine. These guys are just drunk. Uh, that's the only explanation for what's going on there, which really is a ridiculous thing to say. Peter's, Peter's <laughs> yeah. going to make a point in just a minute as to why that's a ridiculous thing to say. Maybe so, but I mean, you, you do have 12 guys speaking different languages at the same time, and it, it could be, I don't know if you've ever been in a, a room full of people who are not speaking a language that you're familiar with. Sometimes it does sound like gibberish and maybe maybe something like someone who's drunk would maybe. do, you know, you know, just throwing syllables out there. But, I mean, to your point, I think it's, it's kind of obvious that there is something amazing. I, I take it that you had the 12 apostles, and I take it that they're each maybe speaking in a, in a 
specific tongue each individually. Right. Uh, yes. a, diff- a different language. And I also take it, and I could be wrong about this, but I take it that every possible language of people that was there on that occasion, they could hear their language being spoken. Right. Yeah. And so uh, whoever these mockers were, the, I don't know of what nationality they were. Maybe these were Jewish, just regular people, Jewish people who lived in Jerusalem, and they just spoke the normal uh, language of the day. Maybe they spoke the the Koine Greek or or what have you. Uh, but I still take it that they would have had to have heard some words being spoken in, in language they understood. Yeah, your ear like just it it focuses onto it. You know, when you hear yeah. your own language, yes. you you can you know be attracted to that. There are lots of questions though. I still have though that. Could you also hear all the other languages happening too? Because you're, like your illustration a second ago, that could create for, for some confusion. Yeah. You know, your ear's going to maybe be attracted to the one that you you understand, but you can't completely shut out all the other sounds that are happening as well. Um, I, I do have, like I said, just curiosities about that. I, there's yeah, no yeah. doubt in my mind that God is making sure, though, that everybody who was present on that day had the opportunity to hear and know His will in, in, in the language that they spoke. And Which was, is an amazing thing to say about God. You know, yeah. he, he cares enough about us that He does make it uh, at least accessible to get to Him and, and to have a relationship. Yes, yes. Um, so verse 14 begins uh, what we just commonly refer to as uh, the beginning of Peter's sermon. Uh, yeah. This um, just powerful, it's in many ways very straightforward. It is chocked full of scripture, which is another thing that makes it appealing to me as a preacher. Um, and uh, it produces results, as we're going to see at the end. So verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Let's just stop right there. When we start talking about uh, how does a person go about being saved, Sometimes we use the expression, God's plan of salvation. Where does that all begin? I think Peter pinpoints where it all begins. He gets up and he says, hear my words. Listen. Give ear to the things that I have to say. That's exactly where it has to begin. It begins with hearing what's going to follow, which is the Word of God. Um, Salvation does not just begin by... You know, some mystical force just coming into your, you know, consciousness or your heart and just overtaking you. Uh, there needs to be some hearing on your part, whether that be you're sitting down and reading the Bible and you're hearing God's word, you know, just by reading it. Whether that's through preaching, uh, whether that's through listening to a podcast or some other uh, outlet, uh, it is the hearing of the word of God that provides the impetus for everything else that follows. This would have been the perfect opportunity for God just to rain His Spirit down on each person individually and yeah. save them if that's what His plan was. But it doesn't seem like He operates that way. No, no. It begins with using you know, natural faculties. Use your ears. Uh, use your brain. Um, and and that's, where, that's where Christianity begins. It's, actually, it, it, it's intellectually based. Uh, so you're going to have to use your mind here and use uh, your, your, your ears and your uh, understanding to be able to get that into place. So Peter asks for their attention. Verse 15 now. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So here's, this is, that, that's, that's Peter's response to the, you know, the mockers who said, well, these, these people are just, they're all just a bunch of drunks, just a bunch of, idiot, bunch of idiots, just you know, babbling sorts of things. Peter's like, 
that, that's, that's ridiculous. It's the third hour of the day, which would make this, according to Jewish time, it would make it like 9 a.m. Yeah. You know, uh, I guess there are people who, you know, get on a bender at 9 in the morning. I'm sure those people exist. Um, but yeah, sure. Yeah, but Peter's just kind of pointing out just the irrational. That, that's not, that does not explain uh, the way that normal people function. Um, but it's funny, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time you know, no. trying to refute this claim. No. Just like, no, that's ridiculous, and he moves on. Yes, and, and, that's, and you know what? That's actually a good point, because that's probably a cue that we probably need to take more often in some of our evangelistic conversations that we have with folks. What happens sometimes is somebody throws out something like this, some crazy, absurd thing, and we just start chasing rabbits. Right. And it would have yeah. been real easy for Peter to just dive off into this big long dissertation as to why the 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 you're drunk argument just doesn't hold any water. And in doing so, he would have completely diluted the main point of his message. Right, exactly. And we need to just take a cue from that. You know, sometimes the best thing to do, I'm going to give a quick response to that, and we're moving on. And if you want to keep yeah. coming back to that, then you know what? That probably is an indication to me that I, I'm maybe wasting my time talking mm. to you because yeah. you're not interested in truth. I mean, we're going to find out later that not everybody who hears this message responds to That's it right. Either. That's right. Yeah. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so here's the first, the first section where Peter's going to quote from some Old Testament scripture. He's going to quote from the, uh, well, we kind of refer to him as a minor <laughs> prophet, not necessarily because what he had to, to prophesy and say was unimportant. It's just Joel, there's not, there's not a lot in the book of Joel. It's, it's a shorter Right. Uh, book of prophecy, but clearly it was important because it turns gets, out it's majorly important. It's, it's majorly important. So use right here on on this uh, important Pentecost sermon. So he quotes here from Joel chapter two, verse seventeen. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Let's just stop right there before we look at verse 21. Um, these are words that would have been spoken to um, originally to Jews living under the, the back during the Old Testament covenant of things, uh, and it was during a, a not great time in the the, the nation of, of Israel. Yeah. Um, but there are words that are going to be spoken here that are actually words of, of comfort. These these are, there's some judgment language in here, but there's as is many is oftentimes the case. God gives words of judgment to the prophet. But then it's also then kind of qualified with here's some words of hope, and um, and part of this is the pouring out of God's spirit that's being promised here. Maybe the first thing we ought to notice is that the expression that's used there at the beginning of verse 17 about the last days. That's a term that gets misused often by religious folks. Uh, we hear see that term the last days. Um, uh, it seems like there's other derivatives of, of that expression. And in the immediate place that people's minds go to when they see that expression, last days, is, oh, well, that's talking about you know, Armageddon, the Day of Judgment, uh, the end of time. That's not what Peter's talking about here. 
Right. Can't be what Peter's talking about here because Peter is going to say here throughout this is that this is being fulfilled right now. This is fixing to happen, or it is happening right now as we speak. Uh, these last days just really, I think, were just referred to different eras of time. Uh, and this is now this kind of this final era that, that we are now living in, uh, which we may call the, the Christian era, uh, which <clears throat> begins here on Pentecost. And this era is going to continue until, until the day that the Lord returns. Um, yeah. That's the last days. When the Bible later on talks about, you know, in the last days there'll be scoffers and et cetera, et cetera. You know, people talk about that again. It's like, oh, you know, looking for signs and, oh, that, that must mean, mean that, you know, the Lord's fixing to return. No, that's just talking about that's the world we live in right now. Yeah. Uh, that's the way things are right now. And, you know, being a Jewish person in this time, hearing this, uh, they were a little bit more familiar with the Old Testament than we are. Yes. Uh, you know, sad to say for us. But, um, you know, when Peter makes this reference, I, I think it would have brought to mind that passage for them. And they would have known that a whole lot better than we do. They know the language. Um, and, uh, I mean, in Joel 2 there, the one that he's quoting from, it's, it's, it's interesting how specifically mentions that he, he's talking about Jerusalem, which mm -hmm. is coincidentally, or maybe not so much so, where they are right now. And, you know, he's talking about the, this judgment that's coming, but also salvation. And I, I think that's, that's where he's really going to. You know, he could have used a lot of Old Testament passages to talk about the, the Spirit, but he chose this one, I, I think, because it, it fits in nicely with what he wanted to talk about, you know, the rest of the time, too. Yes, yes. And I appreciate you saying that about he's going to use this to talk about salvation, because that is the focus of this message. Mm -hmm. What happens is, is people get, get hung up on what he says there in verses uh, 17 and, and 18 especially about the Spirit's going to be poured out on all flesh. Yeah. All, well, well, everybody's going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's the way that sounds to me. You read that, uh, all flesh. Well, let's hold on for a second. That can't be talking about all flesh unequivocally because if that's so, then that would include animals, Mm -hmm. you know, and other non-human creatures. Um, that's obviously not the case. And I think Peter actually ends up uh, specifying who that is when he goes on to say, on all flesh, your sons, your daughters, they're going to prophesy. Young men are going to see visions. Your old men are going to dream dreams, etc., cetera, uh, etc. Cetera. Uh, when it says all flesh, I think he's just talking about all types of people. I think that's, that's the meaning of it. All different kinds of people are going to have uh, these miraculous gifts of the Spirit uh, imparted to them. Men and women and young people and older people and uh, Jews will have this. There will be some Gentiles who may even have this, uh, these things bestowed upon them at their proper time. It does uh, not discriminate. I think that that yeah. was a big thing. You know, they, a lot of people would have thought, you know, Jewish males, that is like the, the king of all, yeah. you know, that, that's what we want to be. But no, God is not a respecter of persons, as we'll learn later, and, right. and so he gives it to all types of people. Yeah, I mean, we'll notice later on in Acts about there's mention of uh, Philip has some daughters who prophesy. So mm -hmm. there's an indication that there were women who had uh, those gifts. In fact, when you read in 1 Corinthians, it talks about um, the gifts, and it seems like there's indication that there were women who, who had those gifts as well. Right. Um, so yeah, there's not the, 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 the discriminators. It's just for the, just for the Jewish dudes. Um, those gifts are going to be poured out on others. But again, 
that's not really the, the, the point Peter's wanting to, to get at. He's just wanting to use that text from Joel chapter 2 mm-hmm. to say what God spoke about long ago, it's happening right now. This is, the, this is really the, the beginning of all of these things coming to their fruition because he's wanting to now kind of segue that to talk about the real important thing and that is salvation, as you said a second ago. And that is made very clear in verse 21. Mm-hmm. If I'm hearing this for the very first time, this is the verse that would catch my attention or this is the phrase that would catch my attention. Verse 21, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a powerful verse. Um, it, it is a verse uh, that gets quoted often. Sometimes it is misappropriated mm-hmm. uh, in, in the application of what it means. But there is no denying, Peter says, that calling on the name of the Lord leads to salvation. I think he's going to make clear what that involves before this chapter is even over. Um, He's actually already given the first step of that. Calling on the name of the Lord is going to involve hearing, uh, listening, receiving the gospel. Um, But there's going to be some other things. It's going to be a whole lot more than just, you know, verbally, Lord, you know, just shouting out to the heavens. Um... Well, yeah, I, I think if if that if that's all it took, I, I think he could have stopped right there, and he would have been finished. But uh, I think this is the verse he focuses on for really the rest of his sermon here, um, yep. and he just really gets down into this and he he dives down. So, so hopefully, you know, we can see this as okay. Here's here's what was revealed in the Old Testament, but here's what the Spirit revealed to Peter and the apostles mm-hmm. of how is this fulfilled specifically? What what exactly does that mean for me? Yeah, if I if I had been a, 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 a Jew living during the time of the Old Testament, and I, I read or I heard someone, you know, make reference to Joel's passage about everyone who calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. I'd be really curious to know, okay, what, what, how do I do that? Yeah. I want to do that. <laughs> I want to be saved. Um, I mean, is it just shouting that out to the sky? Or what is that? Mm. Um, and that's why I said, like, if I'm sitting in this audience on Pentecost and I hear Peter say this, I mean, if my, if my attention was not grabbed before, it'd be grabbed right now in verse 21. Mm. What do I need to do to be saved? And Peter's going to then take that, that statement, that quotation, and now he's going to segue to the really important meat of the sermon. So verse 22. Real quick before you yeah, say that, yeah. I just want to say that when they would have heard the name Lord, mm-hmm. the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, you know, as a Jew, when you hear that, you think you know, Yahweh, Jehovah, yeah. you know, the, the covenant God. Yeah. Um, and I think that he's, he's going to spend a little bit of time right now trying to define this term. Mm-hmm. You know, what Lord are we talking about? Who are we going to be you know, specifically yeah. mentioning? Yeah. Um, but you're right, though. He is going to, to put some teeth to, to, to what is this Lord that's being talked about here. Right. Um, Jesus, of course, is, is God, um, but, but he is a, another part of the Godhead, um, one of the three. Um, so verse 22, now, now I want to talk to you about Jesus. So verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
And so <laughs> Peter does not waste any time uh, getting to the uh, personal part <laughs> of the sermon, hmm. uh, making sure that everyone understands uh, who this sermon is for, is for you. Um, talks about that Jesus, of course, did these things that are irrefutable. Every one of you all know this stuff. This stuff was not done in a corner. Um, he did these things time and time again. Um, but it was all part of God's plan. Um, delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. What you did was awful and terrible, but actually it was part of what God designed from the beginning. It was part of, it calls to mind Isaiah 53, the suffering that the, the servant would have to endure. That was not an accident. It was not, uh, oh, well, that was totally unexpected. I had no idea that that was going to happen to God's servant. Uh, no, it's exactly the way that God uh, designed it to be. Uh, and Peter puts the blame where it needs to be placed, and that is at the feet of the people who were uh, involved in that. I think that's important because, you know, you think of the people who were there, they, they had witnessed that. Some of them have been part of that, mm -hmm. like physically. Yeah. And so you think uh, a lot of them had probably forgotten about Jesus by then because it, it's like, man, we, we killed him. Yeah. Obviously, he wasn't the son of God because if he was, he would have, you know, came down and we would, you know, have the kingdom and, and all that. And so, you know, he wasn't it. So now let's look for something else. Yeah, yeah. It's been, so we've got, this is 50 days roughly since, since his resurrection. Mm -hmm. Um or somewhere in that department, seven weeks or so. And um, and Jesus did not appear to everyone, right. uh, not yeah. every single person in Jerusalem um, during that period of time. So yeah, there may have been some folks who were like, yeah, that guy's just, it's, it's old news. He's not even, he ain't even around anymore. Um, yeah. he, as far as I know, he's dead. He's gone. He's, um, you know, uh, yeah, they said the tomb was empty, but yeah, whatever. Uh, didn't think a whole lot of it. Uh, Peter's like, nah, I want you to think about that guy and what was done to him. You may have not been the one who actually drove the nails into his hands or into his feet, um, but I want you to know that you're culpable. And um, there's, well, this is the reason that you need to know about this salvation stuff. Right. Um, it's, it's what we've often said. You can't know and appreciate the good news until you first heard the bad news. And sure. the bad news that Peter wants to build here at the beginning is, is that you're sinners. You've committed in this sin, you've committed the worst sin possible in that your hands have the blood of, of the Son of God on them in a, in a very literal sense. Um, so you need to know this bad news, first of all. Verse 24, um, but God raised him up. So now let me tell you about the good news. You killed him, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love the language of that verse. We, we often talk about and think about death as being just this destructive force. We, we all know personally the, the freight train that is death in our lives and how it takes our loved ones away from us. And, you know, we just feel powerless when death comes. But I love the statement that Peter says here, death was no match for Jesus. It could not hold him. Uh, you know, it was able to hold him for, you know, not even a full three days. Uh, for a couple days, uh, not even a full couple days, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's so many songs that we have that we sing oftentimes that, that talk about that. Uh, death could not keep its prey, uh, Jesus my Savior. Uh, I don't know, that's just a profound, just the language of it just speaks to me. It is. I think we skip over that too yeah. often and just we, we don't realize, wow, that was really amazing. And that, that's the defining characteristic of 
what makes Jesus so special. That's right. It, it, it is His resurrection that declares Him to be the Son of God with power, Romans chapter 1 says. Um, and this is, this is one of the first occasions now where we're going to see that it is the resurrection that is the centerpiece of gospel preaching. Right. Um, that, that's what Peter, John, and all these, Paul later on, that's what everything's always going to center on is the resurrected Lord. And this is why um, we, we need to yield and submit to Him. Um, verse 25, here he's now going to use some more Old Testament passages to, to make the case for this. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So this is a quotation from the Psalms. I think this is Psalm, is it Psalm 16? Yes. Yeah. Um, and of course the, the, the really um, important part is there in verse 27 uh, that you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Um, I don't know if David when he first penned those words, if he really even fully grasped or comprehended everything about what he was writing there. Yeah, um, I'm convinced probably not. Yeah. No. Um, but this is clear. Jesus is the fulfillment of what those, what those words were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, that when, when he died and was in the grave, all right, yes, he, he was... Uh, he went to this the Hadean realm for that period of time, and if somebody asked me to explain what Hades is all about, I'm not going to even attempt or pretend <laughs> to be able to do that. Um, and you'll not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Um, normally when the body is placed in the ground or placed in the tomb, you know, the, the decay process begins, and it really doesn't even take very long, um, you know, before the, the skin and the, all the other facets of the human body start to corrupt and decay and to break down. Um, what was prophesied about Jesus is that wasn't going to happen. He wasn't going to be in the grave long enough for that to take place. Um, and so he's the fulfillment of, of those things. Verse 28, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And I would imagine everybody to this point is there in the audience saying, yep, that's, that's right. <laughs> David died you know, several centuries before this. Uh, he was buried in, in his tomb. Maybe even some people even knew where, where his tomb was and would, would visit that and show respect and so forth. Um, verse 30 now, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter kind of just spells it out for them. Okay, I've quoted to you this passage from from the Psalms that David wrote. And David, as we all know, was a great man, he's a king. Uh, I think it seems to me there in verse 30, it seems as if Peter's even referring to David as a prophet um, of the Lord and that some of these things that he said were were prophetic uh, in nature. And Peter just spells it out. He was talking about Jesus. Um, And and (laughs) the preacher in me appreciates what Peter does here, that 
Uh, there are sometimes just need a little bit of explanation. Sometimes you can just read the verse, and some folks are going to be like, "Oh, yeah, I see exactly the connection there." Peter though yeah. spells it out for them. If there is somebody that's a little slow on the draw, <laughs> I'm gonna spell it out for you. Jesus is who that's talking about. Yeah, and I, I think he the way he does that is just amazing. You know, just because they would all agree on, yeah, I know where David's buried. I, I remember that, and we, we pay respect and whatever. But if you really push the language of that psalm, and if you think deeply about it, I think this shows the importance of, of thorough Bible study. Mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes we just gloss over phrases and, and don't even think about it. But if you really push that language, obviously it could not be talking about David. Yeah. Uh, um, the, the, the phrase that he uses there at the end of verse 32, after he says, this Jesus God is raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Um, that's really key for us even today because our, our faith in many ways it is built upon the testimony of these witnesses. Um, the, the, these, these 12 men, there were others as well, uh, but specifically we have the written testimony of some of these men. You know, we have the written testimony of Peter that he wrote with his own pen, saw him alive. We have the written testimony of John, saw him alive. We have later on the actual written testimony of, of Paul, who got to see Jesus alive in a very special way. Mm. And under the old law, how many witnesses were required in order to determine whether something was true or not? It said two or three witnesses. Yeah, with the mouth of two or three witnesses. And right there alone, we've got, by my count, there's three very credible witnesses. And it is because of that, I mean, I'll, I'll just say it for me, that's a big part of the reason. Uh, it's probably the, kind of the, the penultimate reason why I do believe that Jesus raised from the dead because of the witness, eyewitness testimony of those credible witnesses who then recorded their words down on paper. There's no, you don't even have to even believe in miraculous things in order to accept that there were these guys who lived at that time and they wrote those things down. Those words have been preserved to this day. I believe what they said, and because of that, I believe Jesus was raised from the dead, and because of that, I believe He is the Son of God. Yeah, Amen. And I think that's what it comes down to. You know, do we base our faith on something that we can uh, we can show evidence for? Yeah. You know, do we have evidence for why we believe what we believe? Um, you know, where where does that faith come from? And I think we're giving given plenty of evidence yes. uh, to support that. Yes. Um, the eyewitness testimony, again, that's, that's uh, what they're just going to continue to preach. They're not going to preach the empty tomb. Yeah. And sometimes we make the mistake of, kind of pointing to the empty tomb. That, that, that actually doesn't prove anything. It's True. the fact that the, these guys saw Jesus alive uh, in the days and weeks that, that followed that uh, miraculous and glorious event. Mm -hmm. Verse 33 now. All right. Since, that, since, since he is raised, and there, there is no denying that, verse 33, what does that mean practically? being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, this quotation in verse 34 and 35 is from, I think, Psalm 110, is that correct? Yes. Which, right. is, which is really one of the really important um, prophetic pieces in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. Um, 
because David is saying this. David used language back then that, again, if you lived back during that time, it wouldn't have made any sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, David's the Lord. I mean, he's the king. So he's saying here to, he's, he's acknowledging this to God, and uh, God is speaking to him, and there's all of these dynamics here. There wouldn't even really even been any thought that there's this other person that's part of the equation, which is Jesus, who is being acknowledged as the Lord. And that's what Peter's trying to help these folks to see, that what David was talking about then, this, uh, this, this other Lord, mm-hmm. Jesus is that guy. I think this, this is kind of ironic, too, that he uses this passage here because Matthew twenty two forty four, Jesus poses a question to uh, some of the, the Pharisees, the people around him, uh, and use that exact verse. And yeah. he's, he says, okay, David said this, uh, but how could that be possible? Because, you know, David is the king. You know, how, how could he talk to one of his descendants like that? That, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And Jesus never explains it there. He yeah. just lets them scratch their heads about it. And yeah, so, the text says no one, no one was able to answer him, and no one dared ask him any more questions after that. <laughs> uh, I wonder if some of those people were right here in this audience. Maybe, and, yeah. You know, they heard that, and they're Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There it is. Now, the light bulb starts to, to go off. The dots are being connected here. Um, but we can't understate the significance of, of, of what Peter's trying, the point he's trying to make is that yeah. because of all this, Jesus was not just a man. He was not just a, you know, a really intelligent guy and had wise things to say or even did amazing things you know twisting nature natural laws more than all of that he is the lord yeah um that's sometimes even in our prayers and in our songs and in our talk we probably don't even give that word and that title the kind of gravity that it deserves um but it, it it's it denotes kingship. Mm-hmm. That, that's the significance of it. He's the king. Yeah. And what the king says goes. Um, what, what the king says to do, we're going to do it. Um, he is the Lord. And uh, if you all, he's saying to these Jewish people, if you all can understand about the idea of David being a king and how important it was to, you know, to obey and to honor him, how much more so do you need to acknowledge this one who was the Lord even over David um, and obey and honor him and give him the... The, the service of your life. Yeah. I, and I think that that is, is what he's really... This is like the punchline of, of his... You know, it, it's, this is the power behind it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think we are supposed to see a connection with what he said in verse 21, that quote, um, those who call on the name of the Lord yes. will be saved. Yes. And I think that's, that's what he's getting at. He's, he's tying this together for him. Yes. This, this Jesus, verse 36, here's the... Here's the final statement that Peter makes for the sermon itself. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Of course, Lord is the the concept of of king. Uh, The the word Christ there, that's the the Greek term for the Hebrew term Messiah, um, which just means the anointed one. Mm -hmm. Um, And what makes Jesus special as the anointed one um, is that he has the anointing that uh, you know, for, for Jews in the Old Testament, there are three different sets of people who were anointed. There would have been um, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and kings were anointed. And Jesus yes. is all three of those things, which is why he is the anointed one. 
Which, yeah, who else could have the, the, all three titles yeah, at no the one same else. time? Yeah, he, he is the one that fits that. Singular, unique. Um, he, he's everything. He's the embodiment of everything that God has been uh, working toward and weaving and stitching all throughout uh, time and history. And they crucified him. And you crucified him. That, that's, and that's, oh. Those were the, la- the last three <laughs> words of, of the sermon is, whom you crucified. So there's the, uh, I'm going to lead, or I'm laid out some important information, done some explanation. Uh, I even I tried to make it personal there kind of toward the beginning. But here at the end, I want you to be extra certain that you understand talking to you, whom you crucified. And that is designed to provoke the response that is given, which ties right back to verse 21 about calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, uh, pricked in the heart. I think the old King James uses, uh, was the numerical standard use? Uh, they were pierced. Pierced in the heart. In the heart. Yeah. Uh, all of those just yeah, designed to penetrating phrases. They're cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Probably ought to specify here in verse 37, when they say brothers, does that mean that, oh, they're already Christians, and so that's how they're using that term, brother? I I think looking at Peter's sermon, it's obvious that he's talking about more of a Jewish thing. In verse 14, he refers to them as men of Judea. Yeah. 22, men of Israel. And then 29, he he uses that word, brethren. Yes. Uh, or, or brothers, and he's talking about their patriarch David, yes. you know, being Jewish brothers. So I, I think they're just using that same term, just using Jewish language that Jewish people would uh, understand, and that's that's what that's how these guys are saying this back to him. And again, if this is a predominantly male audience, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it even takes on kind of a more masculine. Uh, tone with with even the use of that word, but the question is one of the greatest questions, really anybody could ever ask. Yeah, and we'll see some other people in Acts ask this question in various forms, but it's the question. Okay, we've heard this information, um, we're, we're pricked in the heart about it. Um, clearly, there's some belief working in there. Mm. So now, what do we do as a result of that? Yeah, I think that this this question is pivotal because you think some of them were literally responsible for the death of the Lord. Yes. uh, Which is probably one of the greatest offenses you can make as a person. Uh, You know, you hear some people today saying, I've done so many bad things. There's no way I can be forgiven. There's nothing that I can do uh, to be saved because I've just done so many terrible things. Mm -hmm. If that's true, then... Peter might tell these people, well, you done messed up. You can't do anything about it because yeah. you did something terrible. But, you know, all of that going into this, um, I, I think that this, this buildup is, is just intense. And what he says, the response there, is something we should definitely take note of. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't leave them hanging. Uh, this right. is the good part of it. Verse 38, um, you ask a, a very specific question, uh, a question that seems to indicate you, you recognize that there's some actions that need to follow. What do we need to do? Mm. We t- mentioned last week about the book of Acts is the acts, the actions of the apostles. It's in many ways the actions of um, the Holy Spirit as well. We could also even throw in, it's about the actions of other people. Uh, the acts that, that other people do and demonstrate in their lives. And Peter's going to give them the actions that they need to do. Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it seems as if there's kind of a, a, a two-pronged part to the, the doing that needs to take place here. Repent, which is certainly a, a change of direction. Uh, I know when I talk about this like with little kids, I'll illustrate that with the U-turn sign. It's, mm. it's, the, it's a complete turnabout that here we are going in one direction that, oh, that this is not the right direction. I need to make a U-turn, and here in Somerset on Highway 27, we have all these wonderful U-turns, and it <laughs> illustrates that very easily for us. Um, but we get it turned around, and we're going in a different direction, and that's the the, the concept here of repentance. And chapter three, Peter's going to use another, uh, going to use repentance again, and, and talk about that idea of turning, yeah. uh, a turning once again. Um, so that's that's an important component here, and then being baptized. Uh, let's just let's just pause and talk about baptism right here. What kind of baptism is being talked about here? Because clearly, we, we, we've seen baptism references here in these first couple of chapters, um, and it doesn't seem like they're all talking about the same kind of baptism. Mm -hmm. So what kind of baptism is this? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, when we see a word or a phrase in the Bible, and we don't understand what's going on, sometimes I think it's helpful to look at other passages and to um, trying to understand, you know, why is this word here? Um, and if, if I can find this somewhere else in other passages, talking about like the same issue or the same topic, maybe that will help me to uh, determine what does it mean here. You know, we, we're obviously looking at, at something that results in salvation, mm -hmm. something that is in order to uh, enter a saved relationship with the Lord. Um, and so there, there are several passages that come to mind that we can connect with this um, but, but one that comes to mind, you know, just right off the top of my head, Mark 16, 16. Yeah. Uh, he that believes, uh, repent. No, let me try that again. <laughs> believes and is baptized shall be saved. Now, that can be connected with another passage, 1 Peter three twenty one, talking about, he mentions specifically water. Yeah. Um, and when we think of baptism, a lot of people today, when we think baptism, we do think water. Yep. Um, and I think that if we connect the dots between all three of those passages, there is some kind of connection between water baptism and salvation. Yep. And, uh, of course, so many of the examples that we're going to read about through Acts, there again are specific, it's, spe it's specified water is involved in the baptism. So, for mm -hmm. example, in Acts chapter 8, when Philip is out in the, the, the desert with the Ethiopian man, uh, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Uh, in, in Cornelius' house, Peter asked the question, you know, who, who here can, you know, withhold water from, from these people being baptized? Um, there, there certainly is other types of baptism, not just in these first couple chapters of Acts, but there's other sorts of baptism described all throughout the New Testament. There's, um, you know, the baptism of, of John. John the Baptist is baptism of repentance. Um, yeah. There's there's references, uh, I think in Matthew three is it maybe to like a, a baptism of fire, mm -hmm. which yeah. from every indication that I can understand, that's not a baptism that we want any part of. <laughs> that's scary. Yeah. yeah, it's a baptism of judgment being described there. Um, th there is this baptism of the Holy Spirit, which 
we have seen it took place right, right. here at the beginning of the chapter. Yeah. Um, but again, that was for a specific group of people, for a specific occasion. Uh, this baptism that Peter's talking about here in, in verse 38, I believe is the baptism of uh, that, that is where you get immersed in literal water uh, in order to have, as he says here, uh, for the forgiveness of sins, for the remission of sins, the washing away of sins. Uh, that just cannot be understated about the importance of baptism in the way a person goes about being saved. This again, we're tying all this back to what Peter kind of started off with in verse 21 about calling on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. He's telling them now that this is, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. Repenting and being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and that understanding needs to, to be present there. I think a, a lot of people have a concept of this um, that, that might not be in line with what we've been saying. And I think that something that would be helpful is to, if, if you have any questions about what's going on here with the baptism, is this something that's in water? Is it something that we're required to do uh, for salvation? Read through the rest of the book of Acts, mm -hmm. um, I think, and, yep. and make note of when people asked that question, what should I do? How shall I be saved? What are they told? Uh, is baptism involved in any of those? What type of baptism do you see? Uh, and, and like you were mentioning, I, I think we're going to see a lot, of, a lot of water being mentioned several times. Yeah. The, the last part of verse 38 is the other part that needs to just be uh, addressed quickly, and that is what, what is this gift of the Holy Spirit? Mm. It says you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is this talking about that these people, if they're baptized, they're going to receive... The Spirit Himself, He's going to be poured out on them, and now they're going to have these spiritual gifts? Or is this talking about something that is promised by the Spirit, something that is granted by the Spirit? And of course, you'd probably guess, I'm going to argue for the second thing. Mm -hmm. that I think this, this is talking about, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is talking about something that is promised and granted by the Spirit. And I'm just going to, I'm going to say very quickly that I believe that the context of Acts chapter 2 is what makes that point. Uh, we've repeatedly noticed, verse 21, that this sermon is all about salvation. This is not a sermon about how to receive miraculous gifts of the Spirit to where you can talk in tongues and do other amazing things. This whole sermon is about being saved. Uh, Peter points to Old Testament promises about salvation. He explains to them that Jesus is the author of salvation. He shows them of their need for salvation. You killed the Son of God. Uh, he then spells out how to obtain that salvation. Repent and be baptized. And I think it's even clear from the question that they asked in verse 37 that these people are asking about salvation. That's what they're asking. They're not asking, hey, how do we get those miraculous gifts that you guys have? That's not what they're wanting to know. They're, they've been right. cut to the heart because they're looking for salvation. And so for me, it is the only reasonable conclusion to come to that when he promises the gift of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about salvation. Right. Yeah. And I'm on board with that for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, we throw that out there because that is going to be one of those places that uh, sometimes I may be talking to somebody about the, the continued gifts of the Spirit today. And folks are going to point to that verse and say, hey, if you're baptized and you become a Christian, well, then you get those gifts. Um, that's not, I don't think that's what Peter's talking about here. Yeah, and, and again, like we mentioned earlier, a uh, little flash forward, Acts 8 is going to address that, and I think we'll see that pretty clear there. Yeah. Um, before we move off of this this point, I, I want to, you know, 
the reason why I think sometimes we talk about baptism so much is because there's a lot of uh, misinterpretations in the religious world today, and we, we hear a lot of people uh, preaching different things about it. And, and one thing that, that people will say about a verse like this is, you know, repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Mm -hmm. What they will say is for the forgiveness of sins, meaning... Uh, we are baptized because we've already had our sins forgiven. Mm -hmm. um, and just, just a quick side note, if you look at Matthew 26, um, when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, mm -hmm. He's talking about uh, take eat uh, uh, the, the bread and then take this, this cup. And He gave thanks in verse 27, drink from it all of you. For this is the blood of my... No, sorry. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. That exact same phrase, language. It is. It's yeah. the exact same thing. Do we say that we, uh, when, when do we come in contact with that blood of the covenant? Do we need Jesus' blood for the forgiveness of sins to have our sins forgiven? Absolutely. Yeah. So, same thing in Acts 2. Do we need the repentance and baptism for our sins to be forgiven? Same thing, yeah. absolutely. His blood was poured out not because we already had forgiveness of sins. His blood was poured out in order to obtain that uh, that for us. And that you're, it's the exact same, the, the exact wording of it is, I mean, you look at a Greek text, the exact same language being used uh, in verse 30. And it's a great place where we can just let Scripture define and explain Scripture. Right. Um, and you don't need to be a Greek scholar to get all of that. Just let the yeah. Bible, let the Bible explain itself. That's helpful. Um, verse 39, uh, here's something that I would like to think for you and I, this is uh, really good news for us, because verse 39 says, uh, Peter continues on, he says, For this promise is for you, for you Jews, that I'm talking to right here, but also for your children, okay, good, good for their children, grandchildren, etc., and then also for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Uh, I think we talked about last week, um, I'm not a Jew. You are not a Jew. And so there may be, you know, if you're a Gentile, well, I mean, well, what about me? I mean, I want to be saved. And yeah, I mean, all that Old Testament stuff seemed to be talking to Jews and how they're going to be saved and all these sorts of things. Well, the good news is, is that this uh, gospel call is for, for everyone, even to people who are far off, people who uh, far off geographically, far off um, socially, far off uh, in time. Even though, you know, so here we are now, 2,000 years later. It's still for us. This promise is still for us. If the world stands for another 2,000 years, the promise will still be uh, in existence at that time as well. Uh, it's for everybody whom the Lord God calls uh, to Himself. And that's that makes this not just good news, it makes it the best news. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that goes back to what you were saying about how uh, it, this does not discriminate. It, it's yes. literally for everybody, and it's something that we have access to right now. Possibly one of the most comforting verses in the Bible. Yes, yes. Uh, verse 40, uh, Peter's sermon didn't end there. Uh, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Um, I Again, it's one of those places in the Bible where I'd kind of be curious to know what all was the rest of the content of, of the sermon. Judging by that kind of that summary statement, save yourselves from this crooked generation, I imagine he probably was saying some things about um, 
you know, living for the Lord as a Christian. You know, yeah. you, you want to be saved, but then you want to continue to to serve the Lord. He's the Lord. Uh, he's the King. So he, you know, merits our continued service and obedience to Him. It's not just about some initial saving. I want to continue to be saved, and I want to continue to uh, to serve the King uh, and be different from the rest of this. This world, this crooked generation is the language that he uses there. Verse 41, uh, the response is that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I think some translations um, say added to the church uh, 3,000 souls, and that is clearly the, the indication. And this is why we refer to this as kind of the, this is the birth of the church. Yeah. Um, this is the, the genesis, the, the starting point uh, for that, and we're going to start seeing the, uh, the word church uh, being used more and more often in the chapters going forward or congregation or uh, other derivatives of that. Um, but they, I mean, they, they, didn't, they didn't put up some kind of a fight try to argue about, well, you know, for forgiveness of sin, are you sure it's not because of, and do we really need to be baptized? And it just was people just willing to hear and accept the plain instructions that an apostle gave and then just do them. Yeah. And that's refreshing. All too often we, we have to, you know, it seems like when we, we study and talking with folks, it's like we're having to... Uh, you know, get into all of explaining all of, of, of everything. And, and, and yes, it's true that they would have had maybe a little bit of a heads up back then because they would have understood some things about, about, about all of this. And so we do have to give a little more explanation. But it is refreshing to just see people, they can hear the gospel preached really just one time mm. and then one shot at it. And 3,000 people on one day uh, yeah. ended up responding. Yeah, and and I mean I, I think that we can't undersell that it, it was the same day, um, you know what logistically baptizing three thousand people that's a lot of people yep. uh, and and just thinking how long would that have taken and it wouldn't have been easier just to say you know what let's just uh, put off this baptism thing until we can all you know get let's go this weekend you yeah know, and and you know whatever um, but I, I think they saw the importance they saw the the urgency. Um, of the message and the urgency of the response, and then they did it that that day. Somebody once did, and I don't have it in front of me, but I remember somebody once did the math of like, if you had twelve guys doing the baptizing, mm. you know, how long would it take to baptize three thousand souls? Yeah. Uh, and they were trying to make the argument that like it's just not even numerically feasible. Mm. Well, I mean, n number one, uh, we we don't know who actually did the baptizing. True. It could have been these 12 guys plus maybe some of these other people who were already disciples of Jesus and already following Jesus. They weren't apostles, but there's no like commandment that says an apostle has to be the one administering the baptism. Uh, and then secondly, I think the hand of the Lord was, was, was in all of this. And that's the other thing that you just can't discount. Uh, I'm just going to take the text at face value. 3,000 people were baptized that day yeah. and leave it at that. Yeah. Um, might have been baptizing each other, you know, yeah. as they were, you know, being baptized. Yeah, somebody gets baptized, and I, oh, hey, now who who can I baptize? Yeah, yeah it was just like a domino uh, effect. Verse forty-two. This is a wonderful section, and we're not going to have time to belabor everything in in this last little section. But yeah. uh, we'll just kind of make some brief comments about it. Verse forty-two. They devoted themselves. All these new Christians now, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done, notice, through the apostles. I think that's key. If, if all of these people that had been baptized, if they had received spiritual gifts, if that's what the gift of the Holy Spirit means, then what that means is that would mean we'd, we ought to have 3,000 some odd people doing these miraculous signs and wonders and things that you know the gifts of the Spirit would have imparted. That's not what's said. It says the signs and wonders are being sure. done through the apostles. Right. Verse 44, And all who believe were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's, it's worth noting, as we've said, you know, you've got these people that have come to Jerusalem. They've come to observe the, you know, the, the Passover and the Pentecost and those feasts. But now, instead of packing up and going home, instead what they're doing is they're continuing together for many days afterwards. And so you've got all these people who probably, all right, they may have prepared for a seven-week trip, hmm. but they did not prepare for beyond seven weeks. And so we don't know exactly how much time you know, continues to pass here, but we've got people here that they are so excited about what they have learned and what they have become a part of um, that they're wanting to stay. And since they didn't come thinking, oh, okay, yeah, we're going to go to Jerusalem coming up here you know, this spring, and we're going to hear the gospel, and we're going to become Christians, and we're going to just end up settling down there for a while. Since they, did not, they didn't have any way of knowing that was going to happen or preparing for that, there's needs that need to be fulfilled. Yeah. I mean, there's food that has to be you know, prepared and made for them. There may need, we may need, need some clothes. We may need some lodging. We may need some other necessities. Well, where can we get that? I mean, my job is back over here in, you know, Phrygia. <laughs> That's a ways away. Well, how can I take care of myself here? Well, God's answer for that is that God's people are yeah. going to take care of each other. Yeah, but you can't just. I can't read this without thinking the word unity. You yeah. Know, how how together they were. How how much they deeply cared about each other. Yes. You know, it's one thing to care about the Lord, but I think an outflowing of that is that makes us care about other people too. Yes. And so we see that obviously here. Um, they cared about learning more about the Lord, and they cared about taking care of their brothers and sisters. Yes. The spiritual side of of them is being filled, and at the same time, God is. In His providence, this is one of the ways that God operates, just operates through His people in order to provide for the physical uh, side of things. Uh, we don't have to worry about that. You know, and this, is, this is Galatians 6.10. We, we talked about this before we start recording. This is some of that in action, yeah. about do good unto all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. And we see Christians looking out for each other. We'll see continued examples of this over the next couple chapters. Yeah, sure. um, verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, so there is, I appreciate you using the word, just the unity um, and the love and the care that these Christians had for one another. They just couldn't get enough of just being with each other and sitting and having the opportunity to get and to, to listen to an apostle teach every day. I mean, how much money would you be willing to pay for a ticket to get to do that? I'd be willing to pay for that. Yeah, sure. Um, and these people are getting to do that day by day and 
to sing together and to pray together. Those, some of those other expressions that are used back up in verse 42 about fellowship, breaking of bread. Uh, it seems to maybe probably indicate the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread talked about there. Um, fellowship. Some have said that maybe that refers to giving, and, and maybe that's included in it. I think it's more than just that. I think the fellowship is just talking about the sharing together in these, all these spiritual things. Uh, just the whole the relationship that we have with one another by virtue of the relationship that we have vertically with the Lord and sharing all of that in common. And um, the Lord blesses their efforts, the end of verse 47 says, that uh, He continued to add to their number day by day uh, people who were being saved. And uh, we often use that verse to point out that you don't just join the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't just go up to God and say, hey, God, I'm going to be in the church. The Lord adds you to the church in a universal sense uh, as you are saved. And how are you saved? Well, that's that stuff we just looked at in the previous verses about uh, obeying the gospel through hearing and believing and repenting and being baptized. The Lord then adds you to the church. We, I think we'll notice a helpful verse in one of the later chapters in Acts about joining a local congregation. And I'm fine with using that terminology in that sense, but... Uh, God's the one who does the adding to to His family and to His church. Yeah, yeah, and just briefly, a lot of people you'll hear, "I love Jesus," but I, you know, I don't love the church. I'm not I'm not a part mm-hmm. of that. But that's you can't have one without the other. No, nope. you are added to it. If you're not added to it, then you're not a part of Jesus at all. Yeah, it's like a you know the, the illustration used in Ephesians five about Jesus is the head, and then the church is His bride. Mm-hmm. That's like going up to a man and saying. Hey, I like you, but I don't care anything about your wife. That doesn't work. That no. don't work. If if you accept me, you need to accept my wife as well. We 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 go hand in hand. We're a team here, and uh, the same thing goes here. You can't have you can't have Christ without having His church. Uh, it's a it's a team. It's a package deal. And um, the the good example of these people is they didn't have to be coerced to come to church. You know, use that term accommodatively. Uh, you didn't have to. You know, preach at these people about attendance and why it's important to come to worship and engage in these spiritual activities. There, there was a want to. Their want to worked. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a have to thing. It was a we get to, and we're excited about this. And um, there's just there's just a great attitude being manifest here. The simplicity. The other thing I think it's worth pointing out is the simplicity of what they were doing, their worship and the activities they were involved in. It was There's nothing elaborate or uh, out of the ordinary about this, with the exception of that they did get to observe the miracles that the apostles did. Uh, but every, every other aspect of what they're doing is so simple. And mm-hmm. um, it, it's an easy pattern. It sets a pattern here at the very outset of what the church is all about that we just want to try to get back to that. You know, as we, we try to think about... You know, there's so much religious division and churches doing all kinds of different things and teaching different things. What can we do to get on the same page? How about this right here? Mm. How about we just do this stuff that we're reading about in Acts chapter 2? How about we just say the stuff that they taught in Acts 2? And then how about we then just do the stuff that they did in Acts chapter 2? That would probably be a really good a good launching point. Yeah, I mean, how else are we going to know what God wants and what He expects and what, what He's happy with? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we if there's any point in history where we can look and say the church was what it needed to be, is right here. This is it. Yep. They had, the, they had the Holy Spirit guiding the apostles, and you had the apostles personally present and were able to say, hey, we can't be doing that. 
or hey, we need to be doing more of this. And so you're right. If, yeah. if ever the church was as close to perfect as it could be, this is it. And so let's just try to do that. And granted, we're never going to do that perfectly. True. true. Uh, church is made up of imperfect people. Uh, it'll never be perfect here on this side of eternity. But we want to try to get as close to that as possible. Uh, just because I can't draw a perfect circle doesn't mean that I can't recognize when something is a square yeah. or a triangle. Yeah. I look at that, that's not even close to what it's supposed to be. But if we're trying to be that circle, then what that means is that means we're going to be trying to follow this, this pattern, that's this example that's set forth here in Acts chapter 2. Yeah. It's a chapter chat. And we've ch- probably chat is a much that's that's too short of a term to describe what we've done here today in Acts chapter two, but I'm glad we've been able to work through all 47 of these verses. I imagine this is probably the longest of all the chapters of, of Acts that we'll discuss. Right. Yep. I'll give you the parting shot on Acts two before we close, and we'll wrap it up. Well, I, I'm just excited, man. We have all kinds of stuff that we've seen here, and we've we've seen what it takes to be part of that group that that. God is wanting to add us to, and so um, all I can say is let's just keep studying it and keep living it. All right. We'll be eager to get into chapter 3. We may kind of pull some of, uh, well, we'll, I'm sure we'll reference lots of times uh, back to Acts chapter 2 and maybe double back on some of these thoughts and ideas, but appreciate everyone listening, and we look forward to talking about Acts chapter 3 next week.